Good morning, everyone. Happy Sabbath. It's um, an awesome thing when a church is reading the Bible together, isn't it? Going through uh, a study plan. And I've been really enjoying going through the readings myself, and especially this particular chapter. How many of you, put your hand up if you've actually read through Acts chapter 2 this week? Oh, you bludgers. Next week. Oh, next week. Oh, okay. I'm a bit ahead of myself then. Um, so I get to share insights that no one knows about yet. No. So this today is we're going to carry on our study in the book of Acts. And um, of course, as I've mentioned today, we're going to specifically uh, focus in on Acts chapter 2. And Acts chapter 2 is just pregnant with a lot of message, a lot of uh, meaning to do with what is the church. And I want to begin with prayer, and then we're going to look at um, a breakdown of the book of Acts, and then we're going to look at it in, in parts. So let's just begin with a short prayer as we open the Word together. Dear Father in heaven, I ask that as we come together now, Lord, as we open your Word, we ask for the Holy Spirit, the author of it, to guide us into truth. As we study today, we look at Pentecost, a time when the church was birthed, a time when they found their identity and their mission. And I pray today that as before we walk out of this place, that we know who we are and where we're going. And I pray that you'll bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a man called John Glubb who, after serving in the British military, he spent some time studying empires through history and he thought it'd be interesting to, to check the great empires for example the Roman Empire the Persian Empire the Babylonian Empire etc to see if there's any similarities to the rise the life cycle and the, the, the original uh, the intent the, the fall of these empires and as he looked at each empire through history he found that all of them had a very common life cycle this is what he called it they all sort of started with a common goal. They knew who they were. They knew what they kind of wanted to achieve. He saw um, very similar, similar principles. They went through this time of affluence, and then they started to decline. And in recent times, many uh, historians are pointing back to the works of John Glove to say that the very things that he found, that this life cycle that he found in these empires is actually mirrored today in the United States. And that United States today is actually right in the point of its affluence, and it's about to do what? Decline. And there's a lot of people drawing on the works of John Glubb, but I really like this statement that he makes, and this is kind of a, a cliche, quite an um, interesting statement. It says, the only thing we learn from history is that men what? Never learn from history. How true is that? That what he notices, and this is something I picked up from reading his work, is he says, one of the biggest problems that any empire faces, and he said the same principles can be applied to a business or any form of movement, that they start, they start pure, they start with a clear focus of who they are and where they're going. Does that make sense? But he says one of the great challenges that, that any system has as time goes on and they're reaching higher and higher and they're, and they're getting successful, what do they start to forget? Who they are and what? Where they're going. And he says, when that starts to happen, they forget their goals, they forget their mission, and they forget their identity. And I think the same can be said for the church. And I want to sort of begin with a little bit of a, a, uh, a, little bit of a 
question for you here. I want you to turn, turn to the person next to you. This is a bit of a, a thinking exercise. And I want you to ask each other this question, and I want you to just take a minute to answer it. If I was to walk up to you and to say, what is the church? How would you answer that? What is the church to you? Because how we answer this question will define who we are and what, where we're, where we're going. So I want to give you that just one minute exercise. It's an important exercise. Talk to the person next to you. If there's no one there, you can talk to yourself. That's fine. And uh, what is the church? And then I'll, I'll, I'll interrupt you in about a minute. better. Okay. Does anyone want to put their hand up and tell me what the church is? Laurel? The people. The people. Okay, good answer. The people. Anyone else? A community of people who, what's that? Love and follow Jesus. Is that a good answer? Because usually when I, if I was to walk up to someone on the street and I said, you know, what is a church? What do you think they'd usually say? A building, right? Do you think it's possible that along the way in our journey, we've forgotten what a church is? Do you think? It happens, doesn't it? Half the time I say to people, oh, I'm going to what? Church on Saturday. Uh, I'll meet you at church. And I'm thinking of a what? Of a building. And today, I really believe that as we go into Acts chapter 2, here we have the very beginnings of the what? The church. And it's very important for us to have this in our mind. What is the church? Because Acts chapter 2 will answer for us, what is a church? Because here we have the very beginning. We have the first movement. The first message here in Peter's sermon is the first sermon ever given in the Christian church. And we have towards the end of the the chapter, we have the ingredients that make up the Christian church. So as we delve into the scripture today, keep in the back of our minds, what is church? Because if we don't know who we are, we don't know where we're going and we don't know what to do. And so it's important as we go through, we need to look at what is the what? The church. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Acts chapter 2 and we're going to look at the... um, We're going to look at this chapter in in three formats. So we're going to look at here is basically Acts chapter 2 is breaking up into three sections. The first section is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, or what's known as the day of Pentecost. Then we have Peter's sermon. Then we have the beginning of the church, or the birth of the Christian church as a response. So the first section we look at is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. Is everyone there? And let's begin, let's read in verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, 
They were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty what? Wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let's pause there. So here we have in Acts chapter 2, the beginning of what is, what is known as the day of Pentecost, as Luke mentions. And it's important for us just to understand the scene. Let's take a step back and set the scene. What was it like in Israel at that time? And we need to understand what the day of Pentecost is. And there's several things we know. First of all, the Pentecost was one of the seven major feasts of the Jews throughout the year. It occurred 50 days after what? Passover. When did Jesus die, by the way? Passover. You know, this is basically 50 days after the time of the the, uh, death of Jesus Christ. It signaled the beginning of the wheat season and the end of the barley harvest. So basically, this was a time of celebration. This was a time of thanksgiving for the Jewish people. It was one of three major pilgrimages that Jews would make throughout the year to come to Israel. So if we were there in that time, in the the room with with the apostles, what would the streets been like? It would have been full of people from all over the empire, Jews from Syria, Jews from Egypt, Jews from Rome, who have now traveled back to Jerusalem for this special feast. The streets were full. There was celebration. There was party. There was thanksgiving going on. And it was in this scene, it was in this context that God decided to bring forth the Holy Spirit. So here we are. We're in the scene. We're in the upper room there with the apostles. Now, there's another thing we need to notice is the mindset of the church. That we have here the apostles, but how many other people are in the upper room? Or how many people are gathered together? There's about 120 people. So there was a, a roughly around the same amount of people we have t- here, maybe less, together. And what were they doing? Praying. It had been several days since Acts chapter 1, Jesus had ascended to heaven, and now the full realization of what the last three and a half years over what has just happened to them has hit. They have just realized that they had spent three and a half years with who? With God. Can you imagine that moment? Because they kind of knew it, didn't they? But had they fully grasped it along the way? Had they fully really realized who Jesus was? They had ideas. They said, oh, he's the Messiah. We can't wait for him to get rid of the Romans and set up a kingdom. And, you know, Jesus, can I sit with you when you're a king? And, but had they truly understood who Jesus was? It was at this point, this is what's really powerful and very important for us to understand, that before you get to the time of the Holy Spirit, what needs to happen first? There needs to be a time of realization of who you are, of your condition and your need for who? For God. And it was in this context that the church were there, they were on their knees and they were praying to God. And in the book Acts of the Apostles, the author describes it when you read it, she, she basically says that it was at this time that as they were looking back over the last three and a half years, they kept lamenting and saying to themselves, if I could only have done things differently. Do you think that if they knew, if they truly knew who Jesus was, do you think they would have slept in Gethsemane? Do you think they would have fled at the cross? Do you think they would have argued and bigoted amongst themselves about who's going to be at his right hand? And it was at this time, as they realized all of these things, as they realized who they had just been around, that their guilt, that their realization came to them. But you know what was really good? 
is they weren't left with this. They were left with the realization that in all of this, in all of this understanding that Jesus had not rejected them, but Jesus had forgiven them and still come to them and said, you are still my church. I still love you and I want to use you. And it was in this moment of forgiveness that they started to praise God, that they started to pray to God. And as verse 1 says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all with one what? Accord in one place. Can you imagine that moment? We have been forgiven that even though we did all of these things, Peter's sitting there realizing that I had rejected Jesus publicly three times. He still came to me and said, Peter, feed my sheep. The mercy the love, the forgiveness that they experienced birthed in them a, a love and a passion for Jesus Christ. And it was on this, in this context that they claimed the promise that Jesus had given them in Acts chapter 1. Do you remember the verses from last week when Jesus said to them, they said, Lord, when will you come back? He said, it's not for you to know the what? Times or the seasons, but you, shall, you need to wait here and wait for what? What are they were to wait for? The Holy Spirit, the promise that he had given them. All through the Gospels, Jesus had promised them, I will go, I'm going to go away eventually, and I'm going to send the what? The comforter, and he's going to guide you into all truth. He's going to help you do the work. Because I'm one man. I'm limited to how much range I can have. But the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He can go to all the world. And he will send the work. I must go. You see, on that question, the, so many Christians today who don't understand the heavenly sanctuary, who don't understand what's going on in heaven, struggle with this question, why did Jesus have to go? But friends, when we understand the exchange that took place, when we understand the work of Jesus in the heavens, when we understand all of this, it makes sense. Jesus had to go. And here they are. They're not discouraged, but they're encouraged. They're here in the upper room. They're up in this room praying, claiming the promise of Jesus Christ, claiming the promise of the Holy Spirit. And then it came. And when it came, like a rushing wind, like a violent storm, rushing through the streets, and all the people who were in the crowds walking around. You know, what an interesting context, isn't it? I mean, if you're going to preach the gospel, where's the last place would you do it? At a party? Have you ever tried to be at a party and share the gospel with someone? But this was the context. People weren't focused. They were partying. They were having a good time. And then this rushing wind came through. And on top of this, this fire came down from heaven straight into the room. And these men came out on the rooftops, started preaching and praising God. This was the scene. And this startled, this called for all people to come over. Now, the question I have for you is this. What did the fire coming down from heaven represent to a Jewish person? What do you guys think? What's that? Judgment. That's true. So we have judgment because we look at Elijah, don't we? We look at these sort of scenes of fire. What else? What else? In a Jewish mind, knowing the Old Testament, when the fire came down from heaven, what would this have drawn you to? Mount Sinai, God's presence. Here's one for you. Are you ready? When Solomon built the temple and they were about to start the service, what did they all do? They got on their knees and they did what? Prayed. What were these guys doing again? Praying. And then what came down out of heaven and initiated the sanctuary? Fire from heaven. 
this same scene mirrors the inauguration of the temple. It's like similar today where, where if we're going to open a building, the mayor comes and what does he do to the ribbon? He cuts it, says, we open, this, we open this building or we begin this. So basically the fire from heaven represented judgment. It represented God's presence. It represented God's acceptance of this people, of this movement. It was an inauguration ceremony. Does that make sense? So to a Jewish mind, straight away, they knew that fire meant God's acceptance and God's judgment. They knew it meant that God gave approval of this. And so for them, there's several things we notice about the fire. The first is that it was an inauguration ceremony. The other thing we notice is that with the gift of tongues, that we have here a reversal of the tower of what? When we go back to the Old Testament... And we see that in the Tower of Babel, what were they trying to do? It was after the flood. And God said to them, made them a promise through the rainbow and said, I will never do what? Flood the earth again. But what did these guys do? They got together. They took all their craftsmanship and their skill. And they said, we do not believe that God said what he said or that he will do what he said. And we're going to build a tower to save ourselves. So if another flood comes, we can climb the tower. And so what does God do? We see that God comes down and he says that all the people are of one what? Language. And he says, I'm, I'm going to confuse their languages to preserve them, to protect them from f- keep sinning and keep coming together and, and perfecting sin. So basically, God confuses the languages to preserve them and the people spread out. And that's why we have the variations of language today. But here on the day of Pentecost, and I'm just rushing through a few points As these men stepped forward, as these men went out, empowered by the Holy Spirit, they started to speak in what the Bible calls other tongues. Now notice in the Bible, Acts chapter 2, verse 5. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every what? Nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, that is the fire coming down from heaven, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own what? Language. Now there's something we need to understand as to what is going on here. First of all, we know that the Holy Spirit coming down on the day of Pentecost was an inauguration ceremony. It was a way of God saying, I am with them, I am empowering them, I'm giving them the green light to go forward. The other thing we notice is that the Holy Spirit comes down to give gifts, the Bible says. Now, the Bible tells us that the work of the Holy Spirit is to equip the saints or to guide the saints or guide the church. Now, the best way to understand this is, if I was to say to you to go out to the garden and do some gardening, what would be some tools to help you garden? Let's say you had to dig a hole. What would be helpful? A shovel. Or you had to prune the hedges. What would be helpful? A pruner, I don't even know what that's called, pruner thing, scissors, secateurs, all these things, I, I clearly don't garden, and uh, whatever, I don't know, water, hose, you, know, you, you guys get the point, right? You need, you need tools to help you do what? Do the work. So what was the work that God gave the church? Go forth to all nations and spread the what? The gospel. Go and be a witness to the things that you have seen, which is what? The resurrection. Go forward and be a witness. Tell them of who I am and what the mission is. That the fact that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. That the gospel was to go forward. Now, that's the job. Here's some tools to do that. 
So here they are on top of the, off top of the house, and below them is all the street full because they'd heard the noise, they'd seen the fire. People had whispered, you've got to come check this out. All the multitude, the people partying came, and they were all around the house, thousands of people, and there they are standing there. And they're going, what is this? They're all speaking, and we can all understand them. What a better way to communicate the gospel than with the gift of tongues. Now, there's a lot of different confusion over what tongues are, and I'm going to give you this illustration. The word tongues means language. And here we have many people, the Bible, as you can keep reading down, it even tells you there's people from Egypt, people from Parthia, Mesopotamia, etc., etc. The Bible shows us that there's people from all different languages standing there, and these Galileans are speaking to them in Galilean, and they're hearing in Egyptian, they're hearing in Babylonian, exactly what they're saying. Now, I'll give you a modern-day example of this. So there was a missionary, and some of you have probably heard stories like this. This is just one of many. There was a missionary who went out to one of the islands, I think it was Vanuatu or something, this was early on, and he had with him a translator, and the translator said, there's an island just off the main island, and there is a chief there, and the people there have not heard anything to do with the gospel. Would you like me to take you out there? And this white missionary, he didn't speak at anything of the native language. And he said to the translator, sure, let's go out. And so the next day, this translator and the, and the missionary canoed out, just on a basic canoe, out to this island. And when they got there, the translator took him to the chief. The, the missionary stood there and through the translator spoke to the chief. And this was in their native language. And the missionary speaking English and then it's been translated to the chief, and vice versa. And basically the missionary said, look, I want to tell you guys about the God, the creator God who loves you. I want to, and, and the chief listened, and he said, sure. Tonight I'm going to call all the village around the fire, and tonight you talk to us about this God. And so the missionary thought, great, this is awesome. This would be a good chance for me to speak to the translator and communicate the gospel to the people. But there was one problem. The translator said, I can't stay tonight. My family's back home. The, the tides are coming up. I've got a canoe back now. I can't stay. We can come back tomorrow. But the missionary said, this is, a, this is a rare chance. This chief has given me a short window. People are traveling from all over the island to hear me speak tonight. And the translator said, look, you can stay the night. I'll come back tomorrow and then we can speak to them. I mean, that's all I can do. And so the missionary thought, well, look, I'll, I'll just pray, I'll do what I can, maybe I can play charades or something, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. So the translator left, and here he is, this white missionary, this is early, early days in, in these islands, and next thing, here they are, they bring him before the fire, they're speaking in their native language, he doesn't understand a word, they bring him before the fire, they're standing there, he's probably thinking, what am I going to say, what am I going to do? And all the villages around him, you know, bigger than this crowd here, this village is there, and he's standing there, and the chief's like, hmm, you know, speak, what would you do? He thinks, well, I'll give it a go. Maybe they'll kind of understand my language and I'm excited about God. <laughs> and so he begins to speak. He's just, you know, in, in, there's, there's this book called Genesis and he's telling them about God. And, and then as he's talking, one of the villagers puts their hand up and asks him a question in English. He's like, oh, wow, someone understands me. And then he answers back and they're in English and they hear and they answer back in English and then someone else asks him something in English and he says, yeah, yeah, that, that's the guy. And then he's talking in English and then they're having this English conversation. He's like, this is weird. Maybe it's just the chief who doesn't know English. 
And so they spent, he spent the whole night. They were there for hours telling them about God, and the village accepted God, accepted the message of Jesus Christ that night. The next day, the translator came back, and as he came back into the village, and he came there, and he, he went to the chief first, and then he came, brought the chief to the missionary. The missionary was staying in a little hut. And the, missionary, um, the translator came up and said, the chief just said to me, he's amazed how well you speak their language. He said, he didn't realize that you spoke so fluently their language. And the, the missionary is going, wait a minute, they were speaking English. That's the gift of tongues, amen? God has given us the gifts to go and do the work. And when God says, go to all nations preaching the what? The gospel, here are some tools to help you do that. Now, if you have your Bibles, keep your finger in Acts 2. Let's go to Ephesians 4. I just want to make this point. Ephesians chapter 4. This here is one of many chapters in the Bible telling us about why God gave gifts to the church. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Galatians, Ephesians. Verse 11. Talking about God or Jesus ascending up into heaven and sent gifts to men. Here, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. Everyone there? And it says, and he gave some, what are these gifts? What's that first one? Apostles, some, what? Prophets, some. Evangelists, some. Pastors and teachers. Why? Verse 12. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, excuse me, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. Until when? How long do we have these gifts? Verse 13. Till we all, what? Come in the unity of the faith unto the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So here Paul is telling us that God has given these gifts. Why? So we can stand up here and look good? What's the purpose of the gifts? What's the purpose of the tools that God has given us? Everything from the teaching, from the prophesying, from the gift of tongues is to communicate a message of a God that has come to save the world. Even healing, all of these things are there primarily to preach a message of God as love. So here in Pentecost, God has equipped the church for the work. Does that make sense? And here we have just one example. That here in this day, as there's a multitude of languages, not even this could stop the message going forward. The mission was to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we know that on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit revealed, or the fire from heaven revealed God's acceptance, God's inauguration of the church. And here's a little side point, okay? Just keep, you, keep in mind there. This is a side point for you guys. When Jesus died on the cross, what tore in half? The temple, right? And that fire, Jesus said to them in, in, in Matthew, he says, your temple is left to you what? Desolate. That, and this is a little parallel for you. That Holy Spirit left, that fire left, okay? Who's the new temple? Because it says, doesn't it, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 3, it says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the new temple, the new church, in a way, there was like an exchange of, that's why Jesus says, oh Israel, I, was met, I wanted to keep it here, I wanted to use you, but I'm going to have to take it from you and place it in the new temple, the new church. Does that make sense? So God has inaugurated, God has equipped, God has empowered us as the new temple, the new church, to go forward and to present the message. 
And we move on to the second part of Acts chapter 2, and I'm running quickly, is the first Christian sermon ever given. And we're going to look at just a couple of points here as we run through the first Christian sermon in Acts chapter 2. And we'll look at verse 22. Peter, after, after they speak in tongues and the people wondering what was going on, Peter stands up and he gives an address. Now, what's really important for us to understand is that this first sermon is the core message of what it means to be a Christian. This sets the tone for the Christian church. This is who we are, and this is where we're heading. This is what we believe. Notice verse 22. Peter stands up and he says, Ye men of Israel, hear the words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of who? God, among you by what? Miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. So what is Peter saying here quickly? He's saying that Jesus Christ, you all know, you've heard of Jesus Christ. There were many people, even in that crowd, who just um, 50 days earlier or so were standing there going, crucify him. They knew there were people in that crowd. There were Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders. There were people there who had openly and verbally rejected Jesus. They had spoken about him around the dinner table. People knew who he was. They wondered who he was. And Peter stands there and says, you know who Jesus is. And you know that God had approved him by the miracles and the wonders and the signs that God did through him. How much more evidence do you want? But notice what he says in verse 23. Him, this Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of who? Of God. So he's saying that, yes, you crucified him, but all of this happened not because of your will, but by whose will? God was in control. Now notice this. This is where it really hits. You have taken, and by wicked hands, you've done what to him? You've crucified and slain him. Now imagine that moment. You're there in the crowd. Some of these people, were they there when Jesus was crucified? Yes, but were there others who weren't? No, there was a lot of people there, probably more, more people there than not, who weren't even there at the crucifixion. They were probably in Egypt or Lydia or Mesopotamia, and they've traveled for days to come to this feast. They've turned up. They've heard about Jesus. They don't really know much about it, but Peter looks at them and says, you crucified him. Why could Peter say this? Did they? Why could Peter say this? Why could he stand there and with power look them in the eyes and says, you crucified him. You know who he is and you crucified him. In the movie, Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson, this is, this is an important note, Mel Gibson, the director, he, he was a, he's an actor and he only plays one part in the movie. Does anyone know what that part is? You don't, you don't see his face. He plays one part in the movie, and this is the scene. You, if you get a chance to watch it, there's a scene there where Jesus is laying down, and the Romans, and you'll see a hand with a nail and a hammer. And that's Mel Gibson. That's his hand. And then he nails it into the hands of Jesus on the cross. What was Mel Gibson trying to say? What he was trying to say is that I see that my sins was just as involved and that I am just as guilty as crucifying Jesus 
as those Romans were. Because all sin, all sin is against who? And you'll see this all through the Bible. The Bible says clearly, Romans 3 verse 23, Romans 3 verse 11, none, there is none righteous, no, not one. We have all what? Sinned and fall short of the glory or character of God. David, after, after having an affair with Bathsheba and then getting her pregnant and then killing her husband in Psalm 51, he's on his knees and he's praying to God. He says, God, I have sinned against you and you alone. Shouldn't you, shouldn't you be saying Bathsheba? No, no, no. David understood in true repentance that yes, we can sin to each other, but ultimately all sin is to God. And that's why Peter could stay there. And even if Peter was here right now, he would look at you and he would look at I and say, he would say, you crucified him. Because we did. We did. Because Jesus didn't deserve to die. He took our sins upon himself and he walked up to Golgotha. And as Hebrews 12 says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, but is now seated where? At the right hand of God. We are guilty of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Twice in his sermon, he looks them in the face and says, you're guilty, you're guilty. But that's not the end. The message of the church is not a message of you are guilty. It's a message of forgiveness, amen. It's a message of mercy. It's a message of a God that, although we have done everything wrong and he has done everything right, he still gives us everything. He still sets us free. He still loves us no matter what. He knows everything about you and he still looks at you and says, I still love you. I love you. And I want you to be with me. And we put our heads down and we wonder how and why. And all we can do is sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. That he would pick someone like us, that he would look at us and still love and forgive us, even though we've done all these things. The heart of the Christian message, and it's important that we know who we are is, is, is our message. We're called to present a message, is that this Jesus that we crucified, notice verse 24. Uh, uh, thank goodness for verse 24. What did God do? God has what? Raised him up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held of death. Praise the Lord that that's not the end of the story. That yes, we have crucified him. Yes, our sins have brought him down into hell, into death. He went down where we deserve to go, but then he smashed the chains of death. He broke the bonds of hell and he came forth conqueror so that you and I may, forth, may also follow in his path. Whom God has raised up. This is the message of what it means to be a Christian. You can say, I believe in Jesus. The demons believe in Jesus. The Muslims believe in Jesus. I've been to mosques and I've, I've sat there and spoken to Muslim peace people and they go, oh, Jesus, peace be upon him, lovely man. Did he raise from the dead? No, no, no. Was he God? No. 
To be a Christian is not an acknowledgement that Jesus existed as a historical person. It's not a message that he was a great teacher or that he was a miracle worker. No, no, no. The true essence of what it means to be a Christian is to say that I believe that Jesus rose what? From the dead. Paul even says that the whole Christian message hinges on this. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in what? It's a waste of time. We're sitting here today is a waste of time. We're worshiping someone who is dead. If he didn't rise from the dead, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's futile. It's useless. It's a waste of time. Pack your Bible. Go home. So the question I have for you is this. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Are you here today because burning in your heart is the message of a risen saviour? It's not enough to just pontificate about a Jesus. But the message of the resurrection moves into our heart. It is the power of God. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the what? power of God unto salvation. The gospel is a message that just comes into our heart and it resurrects a new person within us. We don't preach a grace, a gospel that just ends at the cross. We preach a gospel that moves into the resurrection. Because Jesus raises up, he kills the old man and raises a new person within you. Do you want to be a new person? Do you want God to move into your life? Because that same power is accessible to you and I. That same power that took Peter, a man that was a foul-mouthed fisherman, that when he was there in Luke and he was on his knees and he just pulled all the fish in through the miracle, and he's thinking, how rich am I going to be? Look at all this fish. And he looked up at Jesus and he saw the purity and the honesty and the love of God. And he said, away from me, Lord, I am a what? A sinful man. But that same Peter is what? Standing here today because he's experienced the resurrection, not only in Jesus, but in him what? In himself. The old Peter's dead. The new Peter is alive. Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but who lives in me now? Christ who lives in me. The message of the Christian church is a message of a Jesus who was raised from the dead by the power of God. And we are to go forth and to testify. What does the word testify mean? Something I've seen, something I've experienced, I'm going to tell you about. And that's why in 1 John 1, 1 to 3, it says, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which we have handled, the word of life, we declare to you. John is saying, I actually touched God. My head was on his shoulder at the dinner table. I spoke with him. I'm here to tell you about him. Can we testify to that? Have we had an experience with God to that depth? Jesus says, blessed are those who don't see me and believe. Have we had an experience with God? Because we cannot take another step in our journey until we've first been broken at the feet of Jesus. The Christian church was birthed by this message. Have we forgotten it? I hope not. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It was from this that the people responded. And notice verse 37 of When they heard this, that was all the people standing there. When they heard this, verse 37, 
they were what? Pricked in the heart. They were under what we call conviction. They had realized who they were. They realized their condition. They realized that they were as guilty as the death of God, just as much as the the Romans who had crucified him. And their response is being convicted. They said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we what? What shall we do? What shall we do to be right with God? What shall we do right now? What, what do we have to do to make this right? Blood is on our hands. We have killed God. What do we do? Maybe you're asking yourself that today. Are you right with God? Are you reconciled to God? Put aside everything, all the superficial stuff. Are you right with him? Because Christianity at its very core is about you and him. It's about you and him. Are we reconciled to God today? Are we right with him? What does Peter say? Verse 38. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And then you will receive what? The Holy Spirit. Just as the apostles had to go through repentance, confession, baptism, then they could receive the Holy Spirit. All of us have to go through that process. We cannot take another step until we fall on our knees and say, Lord Jesus, save me. Save me. Save me. Jesus says we have two choices. We either fall on the rock and are broken, or the rock will fall on us and we're utterly crushed. Either way, it's a painful experience. Either way, we need to be broken at the feet of Jesus. We need to get rid of our pride and realize that there's no other way but through Jesus Christ. Amen? That is the gospel. That is the message of the Christian church. But we don't end there. I'm going to finish with one last section because out of this, out of this moment, the birth of the Christian church occurred. Out of this message, the movement began. Amen? What was that original question I asked you to discuss? What is? Are you ready to see what church is? I'm going to skip some slides here. What is church? Let's take a look at verse 42. Because when we walk away here today, I want you to walk away with this answer. What is church? It is a what? A learning church, a loving church, a worshipping church, an evangelistic church. Let's take a look together at what happened. In verse 41, as we move into verse 42, then they gladly received his word, were baptized, and the same day there were added unto the church how many people? 3,000. Now, maybe, I'm just going to pause on this point. It's very important. Maybe the reason why churches don't grow is because we first haven't gone through this process. Maybe we're too caught up over here going, how do we get the Holy Spirit? How do we get all this stuff? And we haven't gone through this process yet. But then we move into verse 42. Are you ready to see what the church is? Because here is the beginnings and the focus and the movement of the church. Verse 42, and they continued steadfastly, this is the church, in the apostles' what? 
teaching or doctrine, and fellowship and in breaking bread and in prayer. Let's pause there. What does it mean to be a Christian? First and foremost, it means to be grounded in the teachings of the apostles and in the word of God. Amen? A church should be a place of learning and teaching and guidance in the word of God. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 16, for all of scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. In other words, the word of God is everything we need. The word of God is a light to my path. The word of God is there to guide me in the process of what it means to live my life as a Christian person. We need to be grounded in the word of God. If you're part of a church, if you go to a church where the Bible is never opened, where people talk about what they think and what their theories are, I wouldn't go there. Amen? The word must be open. The word must be guiding us, not me, the word. They were grounded in the doctrine. But what's that next word? What's that next word? I'll put it up on the screen. Fellowship. Now, let me, this is, this is where it hits a little bit, right? This is, this is a big thing that I'm thinking about. You know, I'm just going to say right now that as a pastor, and you can, I'm sure you can have this passion too, Jared, Every pastor who reads these verses longs for their church to be like this. Amen? Now, I want to ask you a question. If church is just this here right now, how much fellowship do we get? Okay, just, just think about it. If, if this is how much you know of me every Saturday, how much fellowship are we having? Do you know about my life? Do you know about what's going on, you know, the hardships? Do you know what to pray for? Now, we need to understand there's nothing wrong with corporate worship, amen? Because we see in the early church, what's that at the bottom? Where did they meet? House to house and where? The temple. They met at the temple. There was corporate worship. People came together and it was a praise service that through the week, as they, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, they had come together as they'd met in the houses. What's that second word again? Fellowship together and pray together, and study together, and encourage one another. Oh, and that person needs help. Let's go over there and help them. This person needs help. Let's do that. What is the church to you? Is church an event that happens on a Saturday morning? Because to me, this is just a worship service. Amen? This is just, this is just a worship service. The Sabbath is a very special day of fellowship, yes, but does, does fellowship stop on a Saturday? Is it possible that in our journey in the Christian church, we've forgotten to look back and realize what the church is, do you think? Is it possible that we've lost our way, that we've been too caught up in everything else, that we've forgotten that when we step into the Christian church, when we grab the message of the resurrection and we move forward together, that we've forgotten about each other, amen? That burden is on my heart. I hope it's on your heart of how we can come together more, how we can love each other more. Amen? Because if we were to go back right now into this time, can you imagine? Can you imagine being in the church where people were selling houses because there were people who had needs? Can you imagine that? They were like, oh, they have needs. I'll sell my house. I bring all the money and I put it in the pot and let's distribute it amongst ourselves because I don't want anyone to go without Oh, you need help? Hey, what can we do, guys, to come and... We knew what was going on. We were engaged with each other. We prayed together. We spent time together. Is it possible 
that maybe we need to revive that a little bit? What is church? Because you got it right in the beginning. It's, what's that word? Community. That's how I think of church. Church is community. Community. Say it with me. Community. Teaching, fellowship, and breaking of bread. Here the word breaking bread means communion in the Greek. This means communion. Because back then, 5% of the Roman Empire could read. So they didn't have Bibles like we'd have. So communion was something they partook of to remind them of what? The resurrection. To remind them of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they don't forget what they're based on, where they're going. It's important for us to take a moment, as we do every day, to go back to the cross, to go back to the reason why we're doing what we're doing. You know, one of the things that uh, God is always trying to remind me about, he says, Daniel, why do you go to church? Daniel, why are you a pastor? Because none of that's going to save you, am I right? Let me ask you, why are you here today? Is it a box you've got to tick off to please God? Because it doesn't make a difference to him. Or are we here because we love God and we want to come and no one has to force me to come. I come here because I look forward to you. I look forward to the word. I look forward to fellowship. I look forward to talking about Jesus and singing about Jesus. Amen. What is church? What is church? The church is a community of people driven by the love of Jesus Christ, a realization that he had died for them and we move forward in joy and adoration and praise, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything he has done. And we're fueled by the Holy Spirit. We're fueled by community. We come together because we're letting it go all the things of the world. You know, in that church, you think if you went into that church, they were talking about what was happening financially and what was happening over here with sports. Do you think that's what they would have been talking about? No. All they wanted to talk about is Jesus. They breathed Jesus. They lived Jesus. And they had seen the way that he had ministered and they themselves ministered to others. They prayed. Do we pray enough? I don't. I need to pray more. I need to pray more. And today God has convicted me on these things because I need to pray more. I need to fellowship more. I need to be grounded in the word more. And I need to make sure I know you guys more. Amen. And not just know you. Because we can fellowship together, but can we fellowship the wrong way as well? And I can come to Jared and go, hey, Jared, how was your week? He's like, yeah, it's okay. I was like, good, see ya. Is that fellowship? I'm like, how are you doing, brother? You know, is David Ashrick pushing you this week? Is he making you write all these sermons? It's right, man. All things in common. And how often do they meet? What's that third one from the bottom? Does that mean that we need to meet every day together? What do you guys think? Or do you think it's more of a principle? I think it's more of a principle. I don't think we need to come together. I don't, I don't need to be in your house every day. You'll probably get a bit sick of me, right? I'll eat all your food. But it's an idea that the church is not something that, it's, an, it's not an event that happens on a Saturday. Is that right? To these guys, church was a community that met every day of the week, that when you needed help, I was there. When I needed help, you were there. When you needed prayer, I was praying. That I went to your house on Tuesday, I knew if you needed help, I was there on a Thursday. That we loved one another, we came together, we were encouraged by another. But is that where it ends? Is church just an inclusive club, that it's all about us? Is that right? No. 
Because this church, that although they met daily, they met the needs of their community and reached out in love like Jesus did. They met house to house. We call them small groups. Amen? We just call them, really it's just what they were doing. They met corporately, but they also met what? In little groups, little companies. Because that's where we get to be what? Real with each other. Do you, do, do you get sick sometimes of church when it's all just real superficial? Do, do you? I do. This is a pretty good church, by the way. I've been to a lot of churches. This, this church is awesome. I, I mean that. But you've probably been to some churches or experienced yourself where it's like, hi, happy Sabbath. And you don't realize that I'm actually really struggling, right? I long for the day, don't you, where we can be real with each other and not feel like I'm going to get judged. And that small groups is a great place to do that. But really, we, it starts with us, doesn't it, where we have to come together and we have to start being real ourselves because that's what it was like in the church. They fellowshiped, but they fellowshiped in a way where you could be real, where you weren't afraid to share your struggles, your sins, the things, so that you could have prayer and encouragement together. Amen? The last point, what were they? Notice verse 46, and we'll read down to verse 47, and we'll finish here. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising who? God, having favor with all the people, and Peter added to the church. Is that right? Paul added to the, who added to the church? Maybe the reason why we don't grow sometimes is because we're too focused on doing this and not enough of these things. You know, I often wondered to myself, you know, I've been in some churches, I've been doing evangelism for eight years, and some places I've been, I really feel like God is saying, Daniel, why would I bring people here when you guys aren't even loving each other? And often when I look at this, the response, the result of all of these things is God added to the church. Maybe we need to focus here first. Maybe we need to lay that foundation before God can build upon it. Amen? As we go through the book of Acts together, God is going to speak to us and he's going to ask us, what is church to you? He's going to ask me, he's going to ask you, what is church? And I believe that God is going to drive us, he's going to inspire us, he's going to move and say to us, let's build a church here so that I may bring people. But first, it starts with you and you and me loving each other, right? Being right with God, being right with each other, and then we're ready to go forward. Amen? If you want to take your devoted cards, put your hand up if you don't have a little card. I'm going to give you an opportunity just to um, make a decision for God. And this is between you and God. Put your hand up if you don't have one. And if you need a pen, um, the ushers, deacons can give you a pen. It's $5 each. No, that's a joke. If you take your card... I want you to respond to the message that God has spoken to us in Acts chapter 2 here today. 
And you can fill out your name and details after, but I want you to just notice the second little panel there with the little boxes. And here it's important, all of us, that when the Holy Spirit speaks to us, that we make a decision. As, Peter, as, as it says in the Bible, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my household, we shall serve the Lord. So here we have three options or several options. And I put these down. First one is, I would like to experience church like it was in the book of Acts. Amen. I think today God has shown us, he's shown me. As I've studied this week, I'm like, wow, God, I long for a church like that. I mean, I'm part of an awesome church, but we still got some work to do, amen? Let's be honest. If you long for that, tick that box. But as you're ticking these things, this is a, this is a way that you're going to say, God, I'm actually going to do this as well. I'm not just ticking a box. I'm actually going to enact this in my life. The second one is that I realize that Jesus died for my sins and I accept this, what's that word? Gift. Do you have to earn a gift? It's free. His gift of eternal life. If you want to say, Jesus, I want to accept that gift, that free offering given to me, I'm just going to tick that box today. And the third option is, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that I can look really good in front of my friends. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that I can speak in tongues and be really cool and show people and no, no, no. I want to be filled with the Spirit so I can be what? Used by God. If that's your decision, tick that box today. And friends, when I, I get these back, I'm going to pray for all of you. I'm going to pray for myself first and foremost. Then I'm going to pray for you. As Jared and I and the pastoral team pray for you all. And on the right, if you want some following information about any of these things, tick that, tick that box and we'll get in contact with you. If you want to become a follower of Jesus, you're thinking, Lord, I'm sussing this whole church thing out. I don't really know, but what I've heard about you, I'd like to know more. Because I can tell you right now, God is love. Amen. If you want to learn more about a loving God, tick that box. If you want to make a decision for baptism, maybe you haven't been baptized before, but it's been on your heart. You can start that, that process as we do studies together and you learn. It's not something we just do randomly. We make sure you learn, you do some studies, and you can make that decision between you and God as we learn more about what God's will is for your life and how he wants to use you. If you'd like to receive Bible studies, you can tick that box as well. They're $100 each for those. No, I'm joking, I'm joking. Or if you'd like to lead a small group, we're about to move into small group ministries. As you see, is that a biblical example, do you think, small groups? We're about to move into small groups. Already God is working very powerfully in this church. I can't wait to, to show you guys more and more. And Jared's in charge of small groups. He, you know, he's, he's, it's on fire right now. God is moving. This church is full of a lot of people are on fire for God. And it's just exciting to see the work that's going forward. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So make sure you put your name on there and your details. And Jared, how are we going to uh, collect those? Just at the end? On the way out, maybe? Uh, up the back, the, the guys will tackle you if you try and go through the door. Oh, they're going to hand those around. Okay. So yeah, don't put your money in there. That's, that's for those things. Let's, uh, let's finish with prayer, guys. And, and has God spoken to us today? Amen. He's spoken to me as well. And let's, let's begin with prayer together. Uh, end with prayer. Dear Father in heaven, 
I thank you for your message today, Lord. And we've just scratched the surface of Acts chapter 2, but I pray for everyone here today, Lord. You love them so, so much. I just pray that every one of us experiences that love, that forgiveness, that mercy that comes from a God of infinite love. Lord, we've seen that we cannot move ahead until we first accept that we are responsible for the death of God on the cross. Lord, we acknowledge that. Lord, we repent of that and we ask and plead for your forgiveness. And we know in the Bible it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Lord, we claim that promise. We, we want forgiveness. We want cleansing. But Lord, it doesn't end there. As we move forward, we know that there's a resurrection. And Lord, we ask for the old person to die, the old habits, the anger, the, the last, all the things, the problems we have, let them be killed, crucify them, let them die and resurrect us in a new life in Jesus Christ. And Father, with that new life, may we walk forward in the power, in the passion and in the movement of the church to preach the gospel to a dying world that Jesus Christ is coming again. Lord, empower us, equip us with the Holy Spirit today. We ask, we plead. In Jesus' name, let everyone say, Amen. Amen.